Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. We'll be discussing the sin of pride, Jesus' model of servant leadership, and how we are to humbly serve the Lord. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 30, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us up in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this group and the ability to gather together, and we thank you for your word. And as we continue our study of Mark this morning and study servant leadership, I ask you to help us with our pride. We all have it. We all tend to want to elevate ourselves above others to make ourselves feel better. And, of course, at the same time, we don't have a clue what other people really think about us. And if we knew, we'd probably be shocked. So just put on our heart to help us be more humble Help us recognize that we're servants to you. That's what servant leadership is all about. It's serving others with you as our leader. Help us to remember that and actually apply it in our lives as we study that this morning. Ask that the Holy Spirit just lead our discussion. Let it be your words, not my words, as well as anyone else who speaks up today. Just guide our discussion and teach each of us what we need to learn and apply in our lives so that we can serve you in the way that you want us to serve you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in Mark 9 still. We didn't finish. We're in Mark 9, verse 30, if you want to be turning your Bibles to there. And just to set this up, Jesus, he's now been with the disciples over two years. His focus has now turned towards primarily teaching the disciples. And we even saw in chapter 8, this is important, I want you to see that. Just flip over a page, go over to verse 31 of Mark 8. It says, And he began to teach them, that's the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so we've seen that. He's going to talk about that some more this morning. His focus is really on trying to teach the disciples why he is there. We also saw last week, if you missed the lesson, we discussed the transfiguration of Jesus. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to the recording on that. But Jesus is now focused on them, and he's been rejected in his adopted hometown around Galilee. And so we're going to see that as well today. So we'll just pick up where we left off in verse 30 of Mark 9. And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. So see, that was his area of his public ministry there in Galilee. That's now over, basically. They, have along with the Jewish religious leaders, rejected him. This is no longer going to be his base or his headquarters for his ministry, although we will see he will return there, but that's not going to be his focus. We see there it says, and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. It continues on in verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples. So you can see he's focused on training his disciples in his final time before being arrested in his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's going to teach them again. He says he was teaching his disciples and telling them, here it is again, the Son of Man is to be delivered up into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again in three days. So he's telling them again. This is the primary truth that Jesus is teaching the disciples. But they just don't understand. They don't want to accept it. 
They don't see how a crucified Messiah makes sense. It doesn't make sense to the Jews either. They are still looking for a conquering Messiah. That's what they really want. And we see in verse 32, but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him. So I think maybe what's going through their mind here is they've seen Jesus has the power to raise the dead, but they're thinking, yeah, but if Jesus is dead, who's going to raise Jesus? Like, how is this all going to work? They just can't comprehend this at all. And so now Jesus is going to turn his attention to teaching the disciples the importance of being humble. He's going to teach the danger of pride and the danger of focusing on ourselves rather than others. And he's going to point out that really pride actually prevents you from obtaining the honor that you're seeking. Honor is reserved for the humble, and he's going to teach us about that. Let me show you a verse before we get started there. It's just a few verses. I'll go over there and look at it real quick. It's over in Philippians If you're taking notes, it's in Philippians 2, and I'll start in verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he, being Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus willingly suffered the worst possible humiliation to pay the debt for our sins. He took on God's wrath for our sins, even though he never committed any sin. So he selflessly gave of himself and set aside his power and his privileges to save us. And he also, he went beyond that, he allowed himself to be separated from the Father as he bore the penalty for our sins. He was obedient to the Father's will, and he did what God the Father asked him to do. And there's no death that's worse than death on a cross. And yet he went to that and did that. Even though he's God and King, he did that for us. And you talk about being humble and humility. He's the example of it. And he just now finished talking to the disciples that he's going to have to be delivered up to the hands of men. We see that in verse 31. Suffer this terrible death, and then he will rise again. He's explained that to them. And watch what happens. So he's just talked about this humility. And let's watch what the reaction is from the disciples. Verse 33, it says, And they came to Capernaum. That's Jesus' adopted home there in Galilee. It's in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about that before. He may have even been at Peter's house there. Remember Peter and Andrew, two of the apostles, are brothers, and they live there. James and John are also brothers, and they live there. They all four were partners in a fishing business. And it's believed Matthew lived there as well. So they come to Capernaum. By the way, I've been there. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful area right there on the Sea of Galilee. And he was in the house. So this could have been Peter's house. And Jesus began to question them, question the disciples. He says, what were you discussing on the way? There's the group of them. And he says, hey, what were you all talking about? Of course, Jesus knows exactly what they were talking about. And he's going to teach them about the sin of pride. Verse 34 
But they, the disciples, kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So look, Jesus had just finished talking about his humility, and this seems to be a theme. Almost every time, or a lot of the times anyway, when you read that Jesus is talking about this terrible death, right after that, they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. Now, maybe this came up because, remember, we just saw that Jesus took a few of them, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain, and they saw and experienced the transfiguration. And then Jesus said, don't tell about it. And you can imagine when they came back, the others are probably going, what went on? What went on up there? Hey, come on, tell. Oh, well, we can't tell you. We can't tell you. You're special, but only we know, and maybe someday you'll know. So maybe that played into I'm inferring that, but that just occurred, so maybe a little bit of that's going on. So they're talking about which one of them is the greatest, even though Jesus just talked about his humility and death. So Jesus is now going to take the opportunity to teach them what true humility and servant leadership is all about. And we see here in verse 34, it says, but they kept silent. They were probably really embarrassed about this because they knew what Jesus had just discussed with them about Jesus' own humility. And now they're trying to think of how they can exalt themselves. And as I said, we've seen this before. I'll show you another place real quick. But this keeping silent, when we don't ask questions or seek clarifications of biblical truth, it can then manifest itself in either unbelief or doubt. And they are doubting a little bit here because they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. How can he be the Messiah? He's going to die. They don't understand. Let me show you another place that this happens. I'll take you over to Luke. If you want to go over there, you might want to look at this. Luke 22, just go over to the right a little bit. And I will begin in verse 14. This is the Last Supper. We'll get to that eventually, but just to show you how this keeps playing out. Here, Jesus is at the Last Supper. I'm not going to read all this to you. I'm just going to give you bits and pieces of it. It says in verse 14, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table. This is Jesus and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then he goes in and takes the bread and the cup, and they participate in the Last Supper. You can see that in the following verses. And then he even talks about how he's going to give his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we see in verse 20, in the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten. And he says, this cup which is poured out for you, this is the new covenant in my blood. So he's going to give his body and blood. He's talking about his humility, what he's been talking about. But then skip down to verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Right after that, no concern for Jesus' grief. He had talked about one of them is going to betray him, being Judas. They show their pride and their ambition right there. So anyway, let's go back to the text. This isn't the only time, and I'm going to show you another here in just a second. Verse 35 is where we left off. They had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest, but they kept silent. They didn't answer, but Jesus knows this. So he sits down with them, and he calls the 12. In this sitting down, that's kind of the position that a rabbi would take when they're getting ready to teach. So he sits down with them, and he says, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant 
of all. So pursuing accolades and exaltation from men, he's saying that's going to forfeit the true reward that is reserved for the humble and the people who are last. He's really teaching servant leadership. And I want you to go with me. I'm going to show you what I think is the key verse in the Bible on servant leadership. If you'll just flip over to Matthew 20, go over to the left. It's the gospel right before Mark, Matthew 20, because I want you to see some of this over there. If you just flip over there, let's start in in verse 17. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. See, here it is again. And will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock, scourge, and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, the sons of Zebedee are James and John, the two brothers who are apostles. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, with James and John, bowing down and making a request of him. And Jesus said to her, what do you wish? And she said to Jesus, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, that's James and John, we are able. Jesus said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. In hearing this, the ten became indignant at the two. So the other ten apostles are really irritated that here James and John would think they're so special that they ought to get to sit on the right and left-hand side of Jesus when he ascends into his kingdom, like they're the top two dogs. So that really irritates the others, as you might imagine. Verse 25, here's where Jesus is going to now teach servant leadership. So he calls them to himself. He calls his team over to himself, the 12 apostles, and he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. So what he's talking about here, he's saying the Gentile leaders, these great leaders of the non-Jews, anyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile, these great leaders, the way they lead, they exercise their authority over the people who are under them. So picture the pyramid that you see, the typical what I call top-down pyramid. You got the leader on the top, everybody else on the bottom. Everybody on the bottom is there to serve the leader, right? Anybody ever been in an organization like that? You ever heard of anything? I call that top-down leadership. You may be in an organization that does that today. You may even be that kind of leader. And what does it look like? It looks like I work my, you know, my tail off. I'll say it nice. I work my tail off to get here. I'm here now. I'm self-made. I am the man. You're here to serve me. As long as you continue to do what I need you to do to advance my goals and my career, we're going to get along just fine, right? Anybody ever been in a, does that sound familiar? Okay. That's what Jesus is talking about, top-down leadership, the typical model that we see today. So let's see what Jesus says about top-down leadership. Verse 26 it is not so among you, or you may say it will not be so among you, or it shall not be so among you. 
I think he's saying right there, I don't want you as a Christian using that top-down leadership model. I think that's what he's saying there. It shall not be so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So let's unpack this last part here. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to use that top-down leadership model. In fact, he flips that model upside down. He turns the pyramid upside down and puts the leader on the bottom. Look what he says. He says, if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. You've got to serve everyone else on your team, okay? He even goes further. He says, not just serve, you need to be a slave. That is tremendous humility in the way you go about serving others, being a slave to everyone else, putting their interest ahead of your own, sharing the power, empowering them to be the best they can be, to help them be the best that they can be. And then he goes on, he says, look, I'm giving you the example in verse 28. He's saying he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Here's Jesus, God, King, Lord. He didn't come asking us to serve him. He came and served us and gave the ultimate sacrifice. He not only served, he gave his life to pay the debt that we can't pay. And that's the model of leadership. That's servant leadership. That's the model that he gave us. And you may say, well, hang on, Larry, I get all that, but either I'm retired or the position I have at work, I don't have anybody even reporting to me. I'm a low man anyway, or I work in a business by myself. This applies not only at work, this applies to every single relationship, every relationship we have. Friends, colleagues, spouse, children, everyone. True servant leadership is we serve God as our leader. God's the leader. We take our instructions from him, and we serve everyone else. Servant leadership. So how are we doing on that? And here the disciples are being just like we are. We want to puff out our chest. We're all this, you know, prideful. We're this, that, and that. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't want you serving like that. Jesus gave us another example. Flip over to John 13, and I want to show you a couple of things over there. So that's the fourth gospel. That's going to be over to the right from Mark. Go over to John 13, and I'll begin in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So here Jesus is demonstrating servant leadership. He's humbly loving and caring about those that were at the table with him. And by the way, washing people's feet in that time was the lowest job. Like that was the lowest job that anybody could have. And yet that's what Jesus is doing. Now skip down to verse 12. Just skip down to verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, this is Jesus, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, and I'd add, and God washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So I don't think he's saying that we should be washing people's feet. There's only one other reference that I'm aware of in the entire New Testament about washing feet. It's over in 1 Timothy 5.10 if you want to go look at that. It's not about washing feet. It's saying humbly serving others, loving others, doing for others what Jesus did and how he acted towards the disciples, pouring into people. And especially if you take verse 15 and link it with verse 35, skip down to verse 35 in John 13. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he gave us a test. If people want to really know that you're a disciple, they ought to see you serving others and loving others and showing love to others. You've heard me say, if I went and talked to your family or friends or the people you work with and said, hey, if you're asking for me, tell me about Larry. Would the first thing they say, well, let me tell you one thing. I know Larry's a Christian because of the way he loves and cares about others. Unfortunately, I don't think you get that. And would they get that if I asked your friends and colleagues? I think we all have a lot to do here to exhibit this Christian love and caring and servant leadership for others. So go back over to Mark 9. Let's pick up where we left off. He's going to give us a little example of this. Verse 36, in taking a child, he, Jesus, stood him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name is receiving me and whoever receives me and whoever receives me is not receiving me but him who sent me. And remember, children back in this day when this is written, they were the least significant. Children were basically ignored. Because they were viewed, particularly in the Jewish culture, as not having been able to do anything, to earn anything. There was a very religious, legalistic type belief, and you had to do a bunch of stuff to earn righteousness. And they hadn't accomplished anything yet. They have no power. They have no honor. They're weak. They're dependent. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to be like a child, dependent on God needy, know that you need God. That's how I want you to be, like a child, not someone like the Jewish people then would get to a point where, hey, I've got Abraham's blood and I'm doing all this religious stuff and look at me, you know, he's saying, no, don't be like that. Be like this child who is viewed as a nobody that is dependent on others. That's what a true believer is. And how they treat other believers is really how they are treating Christ. It's an example how we treat others. Proud religious overachievers who in their culture they're expecting a place of honor in the kingdom, they're not even going to be able to enter it, he's saying. But people who have childlike humility and humble faith, they're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Those who are truly dependent upon God rather than themselves. And God loves children, and he also watches how we treat other children. God lives in each and every one of us as believers through the Holy Spirit. And how we treat others actually is an indication of how we're actually treating Christ. So let's keep going on. Verse 38, now John, the Apostle John, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. So I think that Jesus kind of calling out their pride 
sort of humbled John here a little bit. And so now I think he's a little concerned about how maybe they had treated another possible believer that didn't run with their group. This other person didn't follow with the disciples, but he was out doing what appeared to be good things, casting out demons in Jesus' name. So now he's wondering, hey, maybe I didn't treat this person so well. Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. So I think we can apply this even in our culture today. Let me show you a related verse. I'm going to go over to Matthew 12, 30. I'll just read it for you real quick. Jesus says something similar. He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. I know we probably are all guilty of this from time to time. We kind of think maybe people who don't go to our church are inferior or people who maybe are part of another denomination. They're not part of our denomination are inferior. In fact, there's some denominations that even think if you're not in their denomination, you're not even saved, like you're going to hell. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's basically saying, look, there are believers out there. They're everywhere. Just because you don't run with them, they're part of the team. They are co-equal with you being members of the team. If they're not against Jesus, then they're with Jesus. Verse 41, he says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So even doing small acts of service with humility and kindness to others will result in eternal rewards for us as Christians, he says here. And now he's going to go back using this child as an example. It says, And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. These little ones who believe, he's actually not talking about children He's not talking about physical children. He's really talking about, if you look at the original language, he's talking about immature believers, young believers. I think that's more what this is talking about rather than little kids. It can apply to kids. I think this is leading anyone astray is not going to go good. might be a direct temptation or enticing people to sin. It can be an indirect temptation, not showing people affection or kindness, not treating them with love setting the wrong example that causes people to sin, failing to try to help others do the right thing and teach them to do the right thing. It's basically doing anything that would cause someone else to sin. I think an example of maybe doing something wrong with an immature Christian, someone who doesn't have biblical literacy, which is most Christians. Most Christians are biblically illiterate. They don't read the Bible. Teaching things that are not in the Bible, teaching them that, for instance, salvation comes from you got to do a bunch of stuff in order to earn your salvation. That's just wrong. It's not biblical. Or teaching people that you can't be assured of your salvation, putting that doubt in their head. That's wrong. I'm going to also give us, because I know we've got people here in this group who are parents as well as grandparents. Let me just read Ephesians 6.4 to you. Let me go over there real quick. It's just one verse, so I'll go over there real quick and show it to you. It says, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
But here's what I want you to focus on. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So how good are we doing teaching our children what's in the Bible? How good are we doing teaching our grandchildren what's in the Bible? We're commanded to do that, which is going to keep them from going astray. Verse 43, it says, And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. So he's saying abstain from your fleshly lust and your fleshly desires. Let's go to hell. That's talking about eternal separation from God for those who are not believers. That's what that's talking about. But really this is saying remove anything that's in your life that's a barrier to living a life that's Christ-like. Get rid of it. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Again, this separation from God. This is not a call to self-mutilation. There's something called asceticism, which you mutilate yourself to try to get yourself focused on God. That's not a call to do that. That's not biblical because you're probably going to continue in that sin even if you do all that anyway. That's not what that's saying. It's just saying, remove those things that are barriers from you living a Christ-like life. Verse 47, it says, And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It means that it is a very difficult place. The fire is unquenched. The lake of fire, it just means you're going to live in torment. It's taken from Isaiah 66, 24, and it's just talking about hell. You're going to be separated from God with torment forever. That's what this is talking about. Now, your verses may have some notes in verse 44 and 46. There are some translations that include this verse 48 repeated in verse 44 and 46, but in the best and oldest manuscripts don't have verse 48 mentioned three times, only once. Doesn't matter. I'm just telling you why your Bibles may read a little different. Okay, verse 49, and this is another really difficult verse to translate. For everyone will be salted with fire. Let me finish out, and then I'll try to bring some clarity to this. Verse 50 says, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, so what is this? For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is a preservative. It was put on the sacrifices as the sacrifices were burned, and it was a symbol of God's enduring covenant. You can look at that in Leviticus 2.13. So there's several different thoughts on what does this mean for everyone will be salted with fire. Maybe it's saying that all believers should make a long-term, permanent, and enduring sacrifice of their lives to Christ. Maybe that's what it's saying. Let me show you something that would support that view. I'll go over to Romans 12.1. I'll just go over there real quick. It says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So it may be talking about that. It could be saying that 
unbelievers and believers are both going to go through trials and testing. That's what this salted with fire is going to be. It's some of our testing. There's several other views as to what it means. But when you look at verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, how do you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think this is saying just realize we are going to go through trials. And it's a way for God to teach each of us as we go through that. And we ought to respond rightly through our trials. We've talked about this. Rather than asking why is this happening, ask what? What are you trying to teach me? It's truly about having really almost radical obedience to Christ. Don't be a self-promoter trying to be the greatest of all and bring attention to yourself, but humbly serve others and sacrifice to others and pour into others. That's what we're called to do, and that's what Jesus is teaching here. So how do we apply this? I think clearly we're to focus on humbly serving others rather than our own pride. I think we all probably face difficulties with pride from time to time trying to elevate ourselves ahead of everyone else. But as I said, true servant leadership is serving others and having God as our leader. We're to have an eternal perspective, even when suffering, realizing that God is in control of this and he's up to something. And so what can we learn from that? I think it also in today's lesson is telling us that we need to look at what sin we do have in our lives. I think that's what this last part was talking about, cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, taking out your eye. Anything that we have in our life that is keeping us from being able to be obedient to God and serve and seek his will, not for purposes of earning our salvation, but to honor him and to serve him and to bring glory to him rather than ourselves, we need to get rid of it. And I would say we all ought to pray quite often, God, show me the things in my life that aren't Christ-like and help me get rid of them. I can't do it by myself, but you can. That's how to radically deal with your sin. Confess your sin and seek help from him. And finally, don't cause others to sin. How many times do we get with a group and maybe they're doing some things that we shouldn't be doing? It might even just be discussion, gossip talking trash about somebody, whatever it might be, we need to not participate in that and really try to point people towards Jesus. Let people see Jesus living in us. Be the true ambassador for Jesus, representing him. And I think we all have some work to do on that. So I hope this lesson really resonated with you today. Servant leadership is something, I actually wrote a book on it in case you didn't know. Those listeners, if you haven't read it, it's available. I'm not selling books to make money. All the money goes to charity. But I wrote some of the examples that I give in the book are places that I messed up, that I learned from my mistakes, and I'm sharing those with others so that you can learn from them. God put that on my heart. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's in print on audiobook. If you want me to lull you to sleep at night, you can turn it on, and it's in ebook. And soon, I just finished writing a study guide for the book, and it is in the final stages of getting ready to be published. Or if you show up here at the meeting, you get them for free. You get them for free if you're here. So what else resonated with you today? I'm going to tell you that early on in this lesson, I was taking a few notes. I came up with three examples that the disciples gave us of things that I should be aware of. One is something when they got to a point where they didn't understand something, 
when they were afraid, so fear, and then number three is keeping quiet. Are all things that ought to be little alarm bells to ourselves. My wife has told me dozens and dozens of times whenever I'm afraid that fear is of the devil. Mm-hmm. And boy, it calms my heart to see that, hear that. Yeah, if we're trusting God and truly believe God's got this, then we shouldn't have fear. Well said. And I also think going along with that, when a lot of times when we're in our Christian walk and we think that we're a nobody or we think that we don't have an impact on the kingdom, we might be the only person that those people that we're around get to see Jesus. So the way we act and respond becomes, I believe, part of a ministry. They'll just say, there's something different about that guy. What's different about that guy or that lady? And I want to be like that. So every day we need to live our life trying to be that example. Yeah, and the Bible says, be prepared to explain to others the hope that's within you. And if nobody's asking, well, maybe they don't really see any hope within you. They don't see any difference in you to even be curious what it is about you. I love the poster that says, at all times spread the gospel. When necessary, use words. Mm-hmm. Ooh, God, that's good. Uh, my Sunday school teacher growing up used to always tell us we may be the only gospel people ever see or read. That's right. At the same time, the Bible also says that people can only become Christians by hearing. So it's great to be a living example, but at some point you got to open your mouth and tell them. Well, if you are that example, they'll come to you and they'll want to know, hey, what? why are you always in a good mood? Greg Johnson's the greatest example on earth of yeah. that. Every time you see that guy, he's lifting you up and he's serving and people say, hey, why are you like that? Well, then the door just swung open. Yep, you got that right. That's good. Okay, I want to leave everybody with one. This is going to be a little unusual. This was put on my heart this week. I actually learned this from Richard Ellis. Many times when I'm sharing the gospel with someone and they place their faith in Jesus Christ, I will ask them, who's been praying for you? And just about every time they'll say, my mom or my spouse or family member. And I tell them, let's call them right now and tell them what you did. Let's get them on the phone and tell them because they've been praying for you that long. And as I thought more about that, it was like, who's praying for us? You all are so diligent to come to this each week. Who's praying for you? Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's somebody that would love to hear that you're going to this Bible study. Maybe it's your spouse. I don't know who it is. Is there somebody you can think of that's been praying for your growth and your faith and your maturity? Maybe it's somebody who's poured into you. I've had some that have spiritually poured into me. Who could you right now, and I'm going to ask everybody to take out your phone and just begin typing, and then you can finish it after our lesson, a text message to somebody to, I'm going to take five minutes because we have time. Who could you type a text message to that just says, hey, I just finished my Bible study. I just want to thank you for pouring into me or praying for me, or I appreciate what you've done to help me grow in my faith. Let's take five minutes. I'm going to let the guys on the phone go, but when you hang up, I want you working on your text message or email to somebody. Just tell them thank you. They've been praying for you, and give them some encouragement. And with that, I'll let the folks on the phone go. Y'all have a great week, and we'll talk again next week. 
Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.